0: You're listening to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. We're covering muscles, of course, all kinds of movement, recovery, and fitness. I'm your host, Julie Reed. I'll bring information you can trust from new-to-you sources. Today, I'm chatting with Nicole Rodriguez. Nicole is an international human performance coach who serves American and international teams and organizations. Most recently, Nicole was the education department head for Team Exos, a human performance company in Phoenix, Arizona, who serves the world's elite athletic populations. Starting in 2012, she supported international football organizations, rugby organizations, international cycling, and various American sports. Currently, Nicole is developing infrastructure and tools for long-term athletic development programs and organizations. She's also the head of performance for the Dutch national volleyball team and is consulting with Exos and Kaiser. In addition to that, Nicole speaks at many international events. Prior, she worked alongside Mike Boyle from 2006 to 2012. There, Nicole trained a full spectrum of clients and athletes, including NHL. MBL, NFL, Olympic ice hockey, amateur athletes, and general populations. Nicole is a movement specialist who focuses on building on-field and core performance through movement efficiency, player buy-in, and various speed strength applications. She graduated from the University of North Texas in the U.S. while playing four years of competitive softball, obtained her license in massage therapy from Cortiva Institute in Boston, and holds various certifications and licenses. On this episode, we get into Nicole's values as a coach and how they've developed over time the difference between youth and elite level sports, and you don't want to miss the oldie but goodie book she reads every year. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for being here with me today. I feel lucky to have you. And how about you tell me about what human performance means to you and how is that difference or how do you categorize that differently than sports performance?
1: Julie, thanks for having me. Yeah, human performance is... A little bit more of a focus on the individual as opposed to the sport or any performance gains that the player or athlete is trying to make. I'm primarily in the sports performance industry, or that's kind of my population, so to speak, when we mean along with other coaches label ourselves as human performance coaches, we're really truly looking at the individuals and kind of going beyond just, you know, normal training, you know, the traditional sets and reps, so to speak, and really looking at the person as a whole.
0: That's so interesting. How does that flow into your coaching philosophy?
1: Well, I think when it comes to creating your vision, creating your culture, I think, you know, everything from how you see yourself Translates over to your coaching philosophy. So for me, again, like I said, I I see myself very much focused on individual training and not in a sense of, oh, I'm looking at all this different data and making individual programming for my athlete, which happens in elite level sport, but really looking at how I can specify my language specify everything that I do, whether it's, you know, movement, strength, ESD, whatever the case is, I want to be able to really specify to the athlete specifically. So the main point is it's a mindset and it's it's your vision. And the way that that ties into the coaching philosophy is their why. And, you know, it's cool because I, I do talk about my coaching philosophy extensively because I've learned from other great coaches In very high profile teams and organizations. Um, I've had the luxury to be around them. And when you really sit down and have a coffee or sit down and have a beer with these guys and you ask them, hey, you know, like, what's your vision? Like, how do you see performance training being executed? You know, what's your philosophy? The key thing is every single one of those coaches has one. And I have only 35 years of life experience. Um, But I've quickly learned about five or six years ago that it was something that I would have to adapt. So, you know, coaching philosophy is certainly a vision. And I think having that, and I'll be happy to share that with you right now, but having that coaching philosophy allows you to execute the end goal, which is, you know, improving lives and of course, improving performance. I really try to operate off of three things. And this is truly whether I'm working with elite level sport, right now I'm working with the Dutch national volleyball team on the women's side, or whether I'm working with new youth sports. To me, my values, which is my coaching philosophy, my vision are these three things. The first thing is I want to have tie-in because that equals buy-in. Okay, so, so really getting them to understand that what I'm programming and what I'm planning is exactly for them, which is going to help them either improve their sleep quality or improve their jump height. So that's always, you know, the first thing that I try to do is build that relationship and tie in whatever I'm doing so the player can get bought in. That would be the first thing that I focus on with my coaching philosophy. I'm going to kind of elaborate on this one, Julie, just a little bit more because sure. Sure, we want things to be quote unquote sports specific or individual to each player. When you get someone bought in, whether that's your personal training client, whether that's your your elite level athlete, when you get someone bought in, that automatically, in my opinion, equals trust and allows the foundation for a healthy relationship to be made between you and your athlete. So that's always my first thing that I like to focus on. And I do extensive research on my players. Like for example, before I I jumped on to this national team, you know, I had everyone Googled, I was Instagram friends with everyone before we even started. So for me, really knowing the player and knowing about, you know, a little bit of their history, but more importantly, what they're doing now is extremely important. So that would be the the first piece to my coaching philosophy.
0: So how did you develop that? Is that something that you saw in other coaches that you admire and you chose to take that and expand it in your own practice? Or did you come up with this on your own? And was there a certain point in your coaching experience that led you to this tie-in equals buy-in?
1: Yeah, no, I I certainly didn't come up with this. It's been talked about extensively in our industry, looking at more of the coaching science, looking at the relational aspect. It's been really popular. And I think I've had the experience or the luxury of working with great coaches again, like I said, but one of those people actually is Mike Boyle. I worked for Mike Boyle for six years. And yeah, he had me read a book once called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And whoever whoever works with or for Mike knows that book and knows that's his number one writer recommendation. But I started learning about relationships really then. So that was in 2006. And then when I worked for Exos for six years, that was a huge part of the culture. You know, every single coach, you know, whether it was upper management or a coach that was on the floor daily, we all tried to build relationships. And that was just the foundation of the culture. So surely I didn't come up with this, but I did make it a priority because I saw very successful organizations for 12 years focus on the relationship piece. And now that I'm off on my own and not tied to those big organizations full time, now it's for sure a staple because I think you, you really have to utilize the relationship piece, Julie, when you're working with elite level athletes, because if they don't like you, it doesn't matter how good you are, you're not going to get through to them. So the relationship piece stems from, in my opinion, working with elite level athletes and getting them to change their mindset or change their way of operating after 20 plus years of doing what they've been doing. And Great Cook says it best, right? What got you here isn't going to keep you here. So for me, I think it comes from all the great mentors that I've had, but it also comes from working in elite level sport, understanding that the relationship aspect is number
0: one. Do the athletes seem surprised when you know so much about them on day one? I mean, I don't
1: let them know that I know everything. (laughs) But I'm not like, hey, how's your cat? (laughs) That would be a little weird. That would be probably stalking. No, I keep that in the arsenal. But what I do focus on day one is knowing their first and their last name. I'm really big on handshakes. I think I learned this from the soccer world. Everyone just gets greeted with handshakes. So I'm really big on eye contact, you know, handshakes, and I'm always saying their name. And that's the most powerful thing is to just get their name right and be able to say it properly. That was the big ticket for me on my coaching philosophy. And that's number one.
0: And do you have an example of when this has really paid off from your experience? Yeah,
1: actually my favorite example of this, and this is probably when I really started believing this. Actually, it was with my time at Exos. It's actually a really cool story, at least for me to say it. We had a situation where I had to come in after two weeks of a training season starting. And it was X group of athletes, and these were these were professional athletes training for a very important time period. And one coach who is one of the most senior coaches of the organization, he was leading the group. And I get a phone call and I'm living in Arizona at the time. I get a phone call basically saying, there's no option. We need you in Dallas, Texas. Get over here. You're starting work on Monday. This was like a Friday. And of course, you know, I go. And basically, you know, my job was to lead and manage a lot of the program. So that was at the time, I don't know, anywhere between 13 and 16 players, male players. And they just imagine this, they had a two week head start with another coach. So they had two weeks to build trust and relationships with one of the best coaches that I've ever seen in my life. And it wasn't a comparison between him and me. It was more of the athletes attached to this one coach. So this coach had to get removed for other responsibilities that he had to fulfill. So I had to come in and know the training program. But more importantly, I had to get 15 guys to buy into me, to trust me, And I spent the entire weekend literally just researching their playing career, researching any injuries, you know, reading the reports from the medical team. So I knew every single thing about these players because I literally had one day, you know, and people judge you or will determine how they feel about you within the first 10 to 15 seconds. But really I had, you know, one day to prove and to show these guys that I can manage them at a high level. It was knowing when they were going to rehab with the physical therapist and I was there with them to kind of show trust and empathy and things like that. So that's kind of probably my favorite story because I literally had no other option. There was no wiggle room, no room for error. And I had to number one to feel comfortable, Julie, I had to feel like I already knew them.
0: I think really caring is extremely powerful. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't see how you can do our job of being coaches
0: without caring. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. But you're not just showing up. You're actually, you're doing the work beforehand. You're putting in all this time. Yeah. No, I always say in
1: our industry, we're very much servants. We very much take the back seat. I have one of my favorite quotes on my website. It says, basically, it's paraphrased by Harry Truman. He's like, you can be successful in life as long as you don't care who gets the credit. And I really do believe that that's us as as fitness coaches, as S&C coaches, as human performance coaches. We have to be able to be servants and take the back seat.
0: Well, let's move into your other
1: two pieces of your coaching philosophy. My second piece is execute the game plan. And that basically means... Being able to execute the programming and the plan that you create for your population, and this was when it starts to kind of get into, you know, hey, what are the big pieces that I'm looking at with with certain populations? Do they need to run faster? Do they need to jump higher? Do they need to, you know, withstand, you know, 11 month season, whatever the case is, and and using all of our, you know, testing and evaluations to create this game plan, but understand and that it's very much a hypothesis Uh, Long-term periodization, uh, unless you're working with individual sports, you know, it's not really that realistic. When you're working in team sports, you have to be ready to adapt and you have to be able to find new ways to get to the end goal because it's not going to be a perfect world scenario. And I've had to learn that the hard way. And again, the key word here, Julie, is execute because I think a lot of coaches can write a good game plan, but can you have the relationship piece can you physically demonstrate? Can you physically, you know,
0: be able to win battles or or whatever the case is? So you've said you had to learn the hard way. It sounds like there's a story or two there. I think it's just, you know,
1: having all of the perfect data points, having the perfect program, and then one thing can throw it off, you know, someone gets a divorce, or, you know, someone, you know, gets, you know, here and there, and and we can't get them to recover properly. So I I won't get too specifics in, in, (laughs) in some of the stories, but just learning the hard way, meaning that you know, in, in the past, for many years, I, I was looking for the perfect program, and I did believe that I, I did build the perfect program uh, oftentimes, but wasn't able to execute it because of other variables. But just understanding that, you know, there's a, a whole lot of ways to get from Dallas, Texas to Arizona. There's a straight route, but there's a whole lot of ways
0: that we can get there. All right. And then the last piece of your coaching philosophy.
1: Yeah, the last piece is a communication piece. And the goal is to be clear and concise. I think our communication as coaches, it needs to be simplified. It also needs to be very creative. And whether I'm working with youth athletes or professional athletes, I'm not a very funny person, but I do kind of have some words that, that kind of flow and I speak in rhyme a little bit. And I actually learned this from one of my old colleagues, Brett Bartholomew. I used to call him Dr. Seuss. Because everything he said was either funny or it rhymed perfectly. And he wasn't even trying. That's just kind of how he spoke. But the key thing is to be clear and concise. So simplify your words to improve communication and be able to speak in a colorful language with jokes, analogies, good visuals, things of that nature.
0: So is there a tool that you used or other than listening to Brett, how did you change the way that you communicate with your athletes?
1: I think it started many years ago when actually this is this is going to be taking it back to 2006. But when I worked at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, before external cueing became a thing with Gabrielle Wolf um, and Nick Winkleman popularizing it in our in our industry, you know, we were actually using external cues, which basically are analogies early on. And I, you know, it's funny because that's when I actually started to learn about it, you know, Mike Boyle, and I'll never forget this, we were working on a barbell snatch for Olympic lifting. And of course, some kids were having trouble with it. And he literally just said, hey, I just want you to throw the bar up towards the ceiling. And it worked perfectly. Um, and I can give a lot of different other examples of, of some great coaches that I've worked with when I was a lot younger um, that started using external cueing to coach and to communicate and it just simply worked. I mean, research has proven this many times. But again, I'm I'm looking at external cueing here. Of course, cueing outside the body, but looking at ways to make things fun and visual. We started practicing that back in the MBSC days uh, in in Boston. And it's just been carried out. And obviously I've been able to read the research and the literature now that's solidified a lot of things. Doesn't mean we don't use internal cues. There's definitely a time and a place. But when you're in the thick of it, when you're coaching, you know, 14, 20 people at a time, external cues, analogies, colorful languages, you know, just with experience, I found that that was easier for me uh, and more importantly, easier for my athletes.
0: So, there might be some people listening who are unsure of the difference between an external cue and an internal cue. Can you clarify what that means? Yep. An external cue just means a cue that's
1: outside their body. So, if I'm running and I want to give an external cue, I would tell you to push the ground away. An internal cue, if I were running, would be I want you to push your foot through the ground or snap your hip back. So anything that has a cue that's looking at the internal part, which is the body, the foot, the hip, basically paralyzes the athlete and doesn't give them that freedom to explore. Basically, with that, research has shown that it's an attention stealer. So those would be kind of a simple way. Push the ground away versus drive your foot into the ground or snap your hip back, things like that.
0: Great. Thank you. So now that you've outlined your coaching philosophy, where do you see most coaches needing additional work? I'm going to
1: answer this question, Julie, because this is what I needed. It was a thing that helped me out a lot. I think coaches in general need to observe more and we need to have a quiet confidence when we're coaching. And I I think you know if if a if a coach can really sit back and listen and observe the situation and not again, and maybe take the back seat, especially if you're the new person uh, in the in the organization, or you're the new coach that's joining. Um, you see, I think we all need to learn how to observe more, because I think that helps us in a lot of different ways. It lets people know that that we're watching and we're paying attention. I think it just allows for some space space to think space for other people to communicate with you. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned. And really it's been within the last five years is how to slow down and how to let time just kind of take its toll, so to speak. And I used to have such a big problem with it in terms of slowing down and being more observant. And I literally had to train myself how to start manipulating my voice and manipulating uh, how fast I talked and things of that nature. So I put it into three categories. And even like talking to you now, Julie, like I can get really excited and start to talk (laughs) really fast and, you know, talk, be be American. Um, But there's three things that I always look at. And this kind of helped me be a little bit more observant. So the three things that I look at are my volume, and I, and I talk about this a lot. Um, so if any of your listeners have, have kind of heard me speak, they've probably heard me say this, but I talk about my volume, whether I want it to be high, low, moderate, whatever the case is. I talk about my pitch, whether I want a deeper voice or whether I want something a little bit more cheery if I'm talking to kids or whatever the case is, I can change my pitch. And I naturally have a little bit of a deeper voice uh, and then the last thing that I manipulate is the rate of my speech, right? How fast I'm talking, how slow I'm talking. If I want to start making a point um, or emphasizing something, then I slow down my rate of speech because naturally I'm a fast talker. I think we can all as coaches or humans learn how to observe more, you know, just kind of learn learn how to slow down and allow for that space and that time. because. People, I think we all want to talk. I think we all want to share, but I I want to kind of know what my athletes want to say, though I've done a much better job slowing that down and, and controlling my enthusiastic ways of coaching, whether that's jumping on a pile box or being really loud and trying to take up space. I really try to tone that down, especially working with players that are literally two times my size right now. It's really funny. It's really funny to see the size difference
0: between us. So you've mentioned the last five years a couple of times now, and it seems like it's been a really big period of growth. What brought that on?
1: The truth,
0: I went through extensive
1: personal development a couple years back, about two or three years ago. And I think, you know, I kind of talk about the last, you know, five years because, you know, there was a shift in my life. You know, five years ago, I was 30. I was, you know, working with X, you know, with with EXOS at the time, traveling internationally, doing X, Y, and Z. Um, And so I had big shoes to fill and I had big responsibilities. I think the last five years really challenged me professionally, but it also challenged me personally because... I traveled and I can say traveled in past tense because obviously I have a a new gig now, but I traveled a hundred thousand miles a year in almost a six month period. And yeah, yeah, for sure, wow. Uh, I didn't have anywhere to live. I lived in hotels, things like that. And, and that just challenged me because I didn't have the comfort of my family. I didn't have the comfort of a significant other. I didn't have a comfort of a car, a house, things like that. So, so I, I talk about the last you know, five-year period because it, it challenged me professionally, but it was also the time where I made myself go through personal development, which is me you know, working with the therapist learning about my personality, learning you know, ways to, to manage my crazy lifestyle so I can ultimately serve my athletes better. So that was a, that was a, a nice two-year period. Not going to lie, it was very costly <laughs> to have someone's time and attention for two years. But honestly, it was the best money I've ever invested in myself. Truly, it was very expensive, but it was the best money that I've ever uh, invested in myself. And, And I know when I enter in my next phase of life, being marriage, family, whatever the case is, I know that I will... Definitely want to do it again, so I can start to work on on the next transition of life so 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 for sure, the last five years have been really impactful for me, and I, I really do feel that I've developed myself as a coach in the last five years, but more importantly i've I've developed myself as a person.
0: well, thank you for sharing yeah so recently you've been speaking. About a coach's role as a movement mechanic, and in, in some of the presentations that you've been giving, what does movement mechanic mean to you?
1: I see everything through a movement lens, and I, and I might be a little biased here because I've had great training, I've had great education, looking at you know biomechanics, looking at movement quality. I've I've been able to collaborate with with industry professionals, and and when I when I collaborate with them it all comes down to, to movement quality and movement ability. And I really do think that this stems from my time at Exos. Exos, their philosophy is, or Mark Verstegen's philosophy is we're, you know, we're a movement-based company. And again, I really value movement, whether we're squatting in the weight room, whether we're jumping on, on the court, whatever the case is. Uh, to me, movement is king. And so when, when I talk about your role as a movement mechanic, I talk about ways that we're Trying to analyze and assess issues that will cause someone to break down. I'm talking about ways, creative ways to to be able to fix those issues or work around them because we can't, you know, we might not be able to fix every single issue. And then I'm also looking at ways to make the engine a little bit better or make the athlete perform a little bit better. And that can be through active means with training. Or that can be through passive means with nutrition, sleep, psychological unload. So ultimately, I really do feel that that our job, if, especially if we're working with team sports, you know, or if we're working with sports in general, I, I really do believe that that our job is to look at movement from various aspects kind of like a mechanic does you know we have to troubleshoot extensively but we also have to understand the big rocks and the common denominators that's the big piece right there so you have to be able to troubleshoot find solutions improve but we also have to find the common denominators in which we're improving or, or fixing Right. So we can make this a repeatable action across, you know, multiple people, call it let's say 20 people at a time. So, you know, when I talk about the movement mechanic, it's very much a holistic approach using movement as a priority and understanding the common denominators, which for me, like one simple common denominator that comes into mind is with every movement that a player makes, he's usually going through some sort of flexion some sort of extension or some sort of rotation. And that can be done multiple different ways, whether it's loaded or unloaded. But usually to me, those are three big rocks that I'm looking at. So those are three big patterns that I want to make sure that are programmed into my, into my training, but more importantly, executed really well.
0: I love how you talk about a holistic approach to movement with movement as the focus. I know that you're a trained massage therapist. How do you incorporate that at all into this movement mechanic piece of your coaching?
1: Yeah, I have a license in massage therapy. I like to, again, from a relationship piece, I like to put my hands on athletes. And for a while it was, you know, hey, well, you legally can't do that because you're not trained and, or you don't have a license and this, this and that. But for me, I'm a relationship person. If I really, if I don't know you and I'm talking to you, I actually might put my hand on your shoulder and I actually give people warnings. So for me, I use different active isolated stretching, different PNF type stretching, you know, because I think those are effective ways to work with the body. But number one, it allows me to have one-on-one contact with the player and allow me to kind of fulfill some needs that they have. Uh, When it comes to massage therapy, the reason why I got my massage license initially was when I was working with USA Hockey and their developmental programs, I was starting to go on the road with them on their big tournaments or training camps. And I was a one-man band. I was the only one going. There wasn't any physical therapists or physios or rehab specialists there. And basically I had to figure out ways to do it all on my own. So that's kind of the reason why I got it initially. But in terms of any body work, whether it's, you know, specific stretching or, you know, some soft tissue release or even really Julie, sometimes when I put my hands on people, it's simply for a little bit of sensory awareness in that general area. When some real work needs to get done, then obviously I kick them out to our rehab specialists. But when I use it, I'm doing some basic soft tissue. For me right now, it's primarily around the shoulder area with my volleyball athletes. You know, I'm doing some specific stretching or I'm just putting my hands on them for a little bit of sensory awareness because you would be surprised with the lack of sensory awareness people have from limb to limb. It's it's incredible.
0: Yeah, touch is such a powerful tool for that. I'm always asking people, can I touch you? (laughs) I like how you use it as both a tool and as a relationship builder. Man, try it, try it. Practice a couple of stretches, nice hamstring
1: stretch, make it a little PNF, make it a little purposeful, um, you know, a little hip rotator stretch, whatever it is, okay? Practice that on, on a friend or a colleague, And then try it with your client or your athlete. I promise you, you kind of jump on another level with them. Like it's just another level of care. And I mean, when I'm working with 12 to 14 people at once or whatever the case is, and we go through our three to five minutes of self-care and they're kind of rolling around and doing their individual programs, I really just try my best. You know, looking at body language, looking at how they feel or whatever the case is, reading their wellness score. If they just need a little bit of human touch, I go there and I probably stretch them more than poke around because that'll feel uncomfortable for them. But I, I can guarantee you money that it works. So just kind of be aware of, of yeah the, the way your athletes are walking in. And if needed, throw your hands on them
0: and, and yeah,
1: it'll, it'll create a new relationship for you.
0: Okay, so you talk about routine play and how that develop, how you developed using routine play as a kid, and what does that mean to you, and how does that apply to sports specific training? That term actually came from my father.
1: My father, my grandfather was in the navy. My father was raised military, so you can imagine what my personality is like. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I was, I was the kid that had to leave every day with, you know, with my shoes shined and my shirt tucked in with the belt on. So um, I did get picked on just a little bit, but my father, and the reason I I bring that up is because he he was very much a, a little militant, meaning he was very disciplined and he really truly taught me the value of, of creating habits And the routine play comes from him telling me I was very fortunate, Julie, to be uh, gifted athletically. And I I did get the opportunity to play college softball at University of North Texas. So I played multiple different sports, but softball was the one that, that I did enjoy the most and the one, frankly, that I was just a little bit better at. And so my position basically was a middle infielder. So I played second base. And so it was my job to turn a double play. And long story short, for me in my role, like my role and responsibility to play that position. Was to ensure that I can turn a double play. So my dad, knowing that I played the middle infield, knowing that I was probably going to go to college playing sports and in playing softball, he always used to tell me, "It's like you have to be good at the routine play. For you, it's the double play. You know, this is what what we're going to work on day in and day out. And you know, people like Dan John talk about this. You know, if it's important, do it every day." Uh, So for me, the routine play means creating the habits and the rituals and truly knowing your roles and responsibilities. And I think if you can get to the point where you're creating habits and rituals and you can be in a system, you can be in an organization, you can be on a team, where your roles and responsibilities are clearly defined. I don't see how you can lose in the situation. So for me, my father taught me that at a very young age. And then again, as I've grown up to, to be um, um, you know, an adult, if you will, I just kind of learned, Julie, as like, psych, shoot, the most successful people that I've met in my life professional athletes, um, you know, whatever, presidents, this, this, and that. Tony Robbins, doesn't matter who it is. The most successful athletes, men and businesswomen, all have habits and rituals and talk openly about it. So to me, like my habits and rituals started with my father teaching me about the routine play. And I just think that we have to understand what our personal routine play is daily. And then when we look at it from a sports context, again, I think if we can give athletes their roles and responsibilities and give, you know, give them some identity with their position, what they need to do,
0: I think it just kind of you know brings everything full circle. You've worked a lot with youth athletes. How do you instill this at a young age, the routine play?
1: Honestly, it's consistency. You know, I, I think... You need some structure for sure with with youth athletes. Of course, we want it to be fun, but you kind of have to create some guardrails or some bumper rails. You know, when you go bowling and you're not a very good bowler, you can put up those little bumpers so the ball kind of stays in the middle and you can hopefully eventually get down to the pins. I think with youth athletes trying to instill the routine play or the way we're talking about it, create these habits and rituals. I think you need to identify what the bumpers are. um, So they can basically stay in the lane um, and just add in that piece of consistency. And if we're talking, you know, kids under 12 years old, I mean, I think that's about it. Add some consistency, give them some guidelines and let them go. If we're starting to talk about youth athletes, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, then you can start, you know, giving them some goals and some standards to hit. Like for example, like all the women in my group need to be able to do five push-ups if they're 14 years old, which is a lot for a 14-year-old girl. You know, guys, we need to be able to do 15. So I think with the young kids, we create we create some bumpers and give them some a little bit of consistency. With the older kids, we st- we still have those bumpers. We still have the the consistency. Like, hey, every day we're going to do some sort of warm-up you know, little simple things like that. And then with the older kids start to create standards. So you just slowly start to add the elements as they start to get older.
0: And how does that all fit into your beginner and your go-to plan for working with these youth athletes?
1: When you're working with youth athletes, I kind of have, you know, based off of age, based off of talent, you know, I kind of have some guess some standards that I want them to hit, you know, and I think from a beginner program standpoint, there's really not, if you have an athlete, you know, for example, like at a private training facility and you have them for 10 weeks at a time, you know, in every day for three, four days, that's perfect world scenario for youth athletes. That's probably not what most of the world is dealing with. Most of the world is dealing with, Hey, here's youth sports and this is probably why I'm so passionate about it. So forgive me if my, my volume starts to increase and my rate starts to go a little bit faster. So, you know, perfect world scenario is, hey, you have a nice little off-season program, which usually only happens in the United States. Here's, you know, eight to 10 weeks, you're with us three to four times a week, whatever the case is. But in real life here in Europe, I mean, these kids, unless you're in a national training program, like the one that we have here um, in Holland, if you're just a normal youth sport athlete, the only time that you're really doing anything is when you're on the field with your coach. So the beginner programs there are going to be really simple in terms of, hey, let's show you how to, to warm up properly Let's do a little bit of fun speed development and maybe start to, you know, add in some, you know, easy low load or, you know, easy variations of some plyometrics. So, I mean, there's no necessarily a go like beginner program, but I do have beginner components and the beginner components for youth sports would be for me, I'm, I'm talking youth you know, under under thirteen right now, under fourteen, I would say, hey, give me a good movement prep, give me a good plyometrics uh, sessions, and give me some good speed training, whether that's linear or lateral. To me, that would be a good beginner program for, you know, ages, you know, under 13, 14 that don't live in the United States. That would probably be a a starting point for me. But if you have the time and the luxury to take them through and start teaching them how to lift, I know, I I think those are all great, great ways. So I I don't look at it in terms of like a, a perfect beginner program. I look at it, okay, what are the key training components I want to see within each age group, and then go from there.
0: Why do you think it's very different between the American method for youth athletes and the European method? I think, truthfully,
1: I do believe that we're better coaches in America. I think Australians are great coaches and sorry for my international listeners. I think the Irish Irish men and women are great coaches. I think Americans, Australians, New Zealand has some good coaching, but I would say that from a coaching science standpoint, Europe personally is a little far behind and there's a lot of room for growth. So I think if we can do a good job teaching these kids the simple things do a good job teaching their coaches what good training is or what good movement is, I, I think we would have a lot of success. So I have a five-year plan here in Europe, and obviously this is my first year, and I got myself into to working with the Dutch national volleyball team um, for, for a couple of various reasons. But, but that's, that's my goal over the next five years, is to figure out um, how we can better impact youth sports here in Europe.
0: Do you think there's any kind of psychological differences with youth athletes in the US getting so involved so early versus in Europe?
1: No, kids in Europe get involved pretty early. The only, the main difference is in Europe, I'm going to speak a little vague here, but in Europe, you see a lot of one sport athletes. In the US, you see more multi-sport athletes and it's Sure, it might be changing nowadays, but for the most part, you know, kids play multiple sports. So, you know, I, I really don't know yet what it stems from, but when I ask some other industry leaders and professionals, everyone will say, oh yeah, Europe is way far behind, like almost further behind than South America. And I was like, no way, you know, because there's more money in Europe. But yeah, no, I, I, I haven't figured it out yet, but that's the goal is to figure it out. And I'm sure it's going to be somewhat simple, but certainly not simple to execute is again, you, ha- you have to change a culture. So
0: we'll see how that goes. Well, so currently you're working with the Dutch national team. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of steps between beginners and working with the elite level. Are there general differences between working with youth athletes and where you are now? Like, What, do you, what are you doing now with the Dutch national team and why are you there?
1: Yeah, good question. So I moved to Europe in September, full-time. I moved to Poland, Glowice, Poland. You know, we had a bunch of opportunities there and there was a large population of youth athletes. There was some education opportunities. And yeah, so we just started building some some business opportunities, started a company out in Poland. Um, So I I moved to Europe in September. Uh, When I was here, I got recommended for this job. And uh, it was a—it's us a six-month commitment because that's when the players are together. I figured I was like, okay, since I'm in Europe, since they have a full youth development program underneath the first team, which is the team that I work with, you know, I figured it was a new sport, new environment, new demands—men versus women. That, so there's a lot of reasons why I took the job, but currently I, I'm the, the head of performance for for the women's team. And the reason why I took the job is because they they have an American head coach. That's not the reason, but they have an American (laughs) head coach. And he wants to win a gold medal in the world championships. And he wants to medal at the 20, you know, in the next Olympics. And it gives me goosebumps, really. It really does give me goosebumps just kind of saying that out loud because, Julie, that's a huge responsibility. And that's a big goal. Currently our team is, is on average about fifth in the world and jumping from fifth to third, jumping from fifth to second or first, that's, that's a big jump. So we have, we have a lot of work to do. Um, But you know, it was essentially a great challenge and yeah, that's, that's what we're doing right now. And we're working really hard as a team to, to, to restructure, to organize. I'm working really hard with the players We have a very demanding schedule. Oh my gosh, the schedule is is so demanding. I really sometimes I don't believe that this is the actual schedule. So the girls are are tough as nails and I know for a fact that we will make big changes and we'll make big progress like any organization, Julie. I think we all want it to happen immediately we just have to figure out what changes we want to make in year one, what changes we want to make in year two. So we're ready for, for the big dance, which is the Olympics. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And it is extremely time consuming, but you know, and it's a full-time job, but I I'm determined to figure out how I can help, whether that's, if I can help, you know, what I can do in one year, what I can do in two years or three years, who knows, but I'm just trying to say, Hey, And this is really my job right now. And I'll just kind of elaborate here. Um, I know we're running short on time, but so check this out with the national team system. They're with you for six months out of the year. And the other six months, they're with their own professional club team doing X, Y, and Z. So every year when the players come back, and this is true with many national teams, you basically have to start from square one for 90% of the players because of the, care, the poor care with the club teams, because of the excessive volume or games that they play. So really my goal is to give them enough tools, give them enough autonomy, teach them about their body so that when they come back next year, we can continue to grow and progress as opposed to restart and reinvent the wheel. And again, that, that's my goal. I'm working hard on on achieving that, but it, it doesn't come easy. And it certainly, you need an entire team, head coaches, assistant coaches, medical, to kind of be all on board. So, and as you know, with an organization, that's, that's never easy. So that's kind of what I got myself into,
0: Julie, and it's a full-time job. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> wow. So when working with athletes at the elite level, there has to be a huge component of mental toughness and mental game. What is your take on building that with your athletes?
1: Good question. Especially because I openly told you that, you know, I've been through some personal development. I really do believe mental toughness is intrinsic. It's within you. And I do think it's a mindset. I think the best players that I know operate on two levels. They operate really high, high intensity, game-like movements, game-like training, and they operate really low, right? So I think in terms of mental toughness from a physical level, I think we have to do a better job teaching players how to work high and how to kind of recover and work low and stay out of the middle. That's number one. From a physical standpoint, when things start to get tough, the mental toughness also comes when we can change our mindset and really start to think, right? Assume positive intent. Right. Until until proven otherwise. But I think if if we can really start to change our our mindset, to assume positive intent, you know, to simply not to take things personally, I think that all kind of changes everything. So from a physical level, just being able to to have strategies and teach them how to manage themselves. But from a mental level, really just kind of understanding the the big picture, you know, looking at those two points that I just said. And again, I think as long as you know what your role and your responsibility is, you're going to want to fulfill it. I think it gets tough when it starts to feel like all this toughness that you're going through, physical, mental, when it has no meaning, right? But when it has a meaning, uh, you can probably withstand a lot of things. And, and we saw that within concentration camps. <laughs> you know, like Viktor Frankl talks about that all the time with man's search for meaning. Is like, as long as you have a why, you can bear any hell. And uh, I mean, I think that's true with mental toughness.
0: Okay, Nicole, at the end of every podcast, I'm asking my guests lightning round questions. And the first one is, what is the most memorable thing you've ever eaten? Number one
1: was actually just recently at an ice cream shop. Uh, ge- excuse me, a gelato shop in mm-hmm. Gliwice, Poland, by our friend who's an Italian gelato maker. They had me try fresh gelato straight out of the machine, like literally made right there. It was the creamy and most beautiful thing I've ever put in my mouth. It was <laughs> unbelievable and. Those who know me and my friends and family know that I absolutely adore ice cream. I, will, I ate ice cream one summer um, for breakfast and lunch, and the only meal I had was dinner. That's how much I like ice cream. So that was probably the most memorable thing, just realizing how, how beautiful, like good, fresh ice cream can taste. And then the second memorable thing was an eight-course meal that me and my friends had at one of the best sushi restaurants in Norway. <laughs>
0: That's, I mean, that's right near, you're right on the ocean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. What are three people, books, or podcasts that have been extremely influential to you?
1: People are easy. And I, and I might be a little biased because I've worked, you know, side by side these people for many years. So my my three people seriously are, are going to be Mike Boyle, Mark Versagan, and my dad, and i think a lot of my stories stem from those three men but those three men have have truly shaped me in, in many ways and i and i really do think about them often and think about the the lessons that they taught me and each of them kind of provided their own unique individual lesson to me so those are those are my my three men in my life that that i highly respect and know a lot of my career to and then a couple of, some of my favorite books, number one, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I really try to read that book once a year. For a long time, I read that book twice a year when I was a little bit younger. Second book, which is my absolute favorite, it's called The Checklist Manifesto. Um, I, I don't know, Julie, if you've read that, but I really do believe that anyone in any industry can start to look at you know, look at that book and start to start to realize the importance of systems to to avoid uh, repeated mistakes. And, and I think that's really what we're dealing with here with the national team too. Is like, how do we avoid these repeated mistakes, and how do we become a little bit more systematic? So those are, yeah, some of my some of my influences and. My two top books, and of course, there there are many other I've read. There's this one book, if anyone's into mindfulness, it's basically a guide for mindfulness. It's called You Are Here. Um, And I I don't remember the author, um, but I read that book uh, in the beginning of my personal development. And it was just kind of, yeah, teaching me how to be a little bit more aware, a little bit more mindful and are mindful and just slow myself down.
0: Great recommendations. If somebody came to earth from another planet, what is one thing you'd tell them?
1: What I would actually tell them is clarity comes from engagement, not thought. So that, that would be my message um, is, is to take action, uh, engage, um, because ultimately that's, that's how we start
0: to make decisions. All right. Nicole. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really had a great time talking with you and I, I love how you wrapped your coaching philosophy up in a nice package, especially at the end with the mental game talk. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Julie, and best of luck with everything in the future. And
0: uh, yeah, we'll hopefully talk soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. To support Nicole, check her out at the Perform Better Summit in Long Beach on August 19th, 2018. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, or buy a butt bag at musclestothemasses.com.